Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Philippe Hunemann. Uh, from, uh, he is a philosopher of biology, working mainly on issues of evolutionary biology. And we are talking about his book, Why, which beautiful cover, by the way. Um, and it's the philosophy behind the question. Um, and your background is mainly in evolutionary biology, I believe. But uh, talk to us a little bit about why this book. Why did you <laughs> I, not? To, I'm sure that that's going to happen a lot where I ask why questions and you're like, well, let me tell you about why you're asking why. But um, why this book in particular? Why did you go um, feel this need to even move uh, philosophy and evolutionary biology, make that that crossing? Well, actually, actually so I, I, I'm a philosopher of science ge generally, and then I specialize in the philosophy of evolutionary biology and ecology. I've been doing that for like maybe two decades now. And um, so, uh, and I've been, uh, as many of my colleagues, um, addressing issues like what what is an explanation uh, in evolutionary biology? What's, what is the, the what's natural selection, which is the most important possibly explanation for Darwinian people. Uh, and, and so I've been addressing many issues in the philosophy of science that are uh, actually connected to the way scientists answer why questions. And so I've been also um, considering uh, the question of uh, causal explanations. And you know, in a world, uh, the question are all scientific explanations, causal explanation, namely, you know, we, gravitation is the, is the cause of falling bodies or uh, the orbit of planets. And, but are there explanations that are uh, just non-causal and so purely relying on mathematical properties? And that's, that's something I've been doing in several academic papers and quite technical, like many philosophers of science do. And... Um, and also my just like uh, very remote background is philosophy and history of philosophy and German philosophy uh, at the times of Leibniz and Kant and Hegel. So, uh, and even though I stopped, well, I'm not doing that a lot right now. Um, I, I think the connection between uh, the, the very traditional philosophical questions. So for example, uh, what's called the principle of reason, everything has a reason, which takes a really important uh, role in the in the book. Those questions are really interesting to me, and uh, and um, that's why I wanted to uh, bridge some of the very technical things, like you know what are the limits of a sele natural selection explanation, with very general questions that span across philosophy of language. So, what's the 
sort of very the, the peculiarities of a why question and uh, philosophy of history. I mean, what it is to explain, you know, like a war and uh, ethics, of course, of philosophy of action, what I'm doing when I'm justifying what I do and what the difference between a, a, a reason and a good reason. So those kind of questions. And I, I wanted to sketch a kind of big picture that uh, centers on the question why and uh, look at how it... Uh, it uh, functions not only in evolutionary biology, but also in the sciences and more generally in the, uh, like in everyday discourse and in our everyday practices. And I guess one of the key ideas of the book is that there is some unity uh, through between like justifying an action. So I tell you why I do what I'm doing, explaining a complex phenomenon in science. Um, and uh, Justifying my beliefs, also I tell you why I think that, uh, and reason as a as a faculty. I mean, the human faculty of reason, the thing we refer to when we say uh, uh, humans are rational beings. Reason is a faculty for uh, asking those kinds of questions, and the answers to those questions are what we call the reasons. The reason for some, the reason for an action, for acting in such a way. The reason of this belief. The reason of this event. Yes. Uh and I, I love making these kind of connections. I had Catherine Malibu on to talk about uh, Kant's view of the transcendent. And um, one of the things we talked about is how the critique of pure reason seems to focus on physics. And then in critique of judgment, she thinks that he's talking more about biology because once you switch between physics, which kind of has its own, like it's very closed off, biology includes things like purpose. Which, which starts to get us into the realm of, of why. I see that you, you delve quite a bit into Kant here too. Um, but so that, that is interesting to me. Um, but before I even get into that, let me just say, I love the way that you approach this. I love the way, uh, this is something, not right now. My, my oldest son is eight years old, so probably a little heavy reading for him. But this is, I, I think, uh, just a really important, um, it's, it's not a... An incredibly easy book, but it is an approachable book, and it really does a great job of uh, answering, like connecting academic questions with real life questions. And I really appreciate that. So let me start off by saying that. So thank um, you. I mean, yeah, that, that was the, 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 my goal somehow. So, so I'm very glad to hear you. Yeah, 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 like saying this. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about. Um, the, that, that first uh, incident in the book, you're talking about the, the tree falling on a man. And I think this is a, a great way, even as, you know, you know I, I, I mentioned Kant, but like the, the limits of why, the territory of why, uh, can you give a little bit of how the, the story of how this happened in your mind, how you were, you were saying, I'm asking this why question, and it seems to be hitting a brick wall, so to speak. Yeah, 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 actually. <coughs> In the book, I'm, I'm using um, somehow Kant's lexicon. So he talks all the time of territories, uh, limits, domains. Uh, and by the way, half of his teaching duties were in geography. So that makes sense. I mean, even though few people are aware of that. And, uh, but, but that's really not a philosophy book about Kant. And, um, but, but what I take from him here is the concern with limits. And so talking about kids and 
had the same experience and we have kids too and you know like this kids pressing you to to ask why is this uh why is this like this why do why do you uh wh- why are you why are, why should we wake up why do we eat why and so on uh and uh, and i think that they they what they are also searching for it's not only answers to their questions but also a sense of the limits of those questions. I mean, some of those questions they ask have absolutely no sense at all. I mean, I think, I mean, that might be more complicated as I go through it in the end of the book, but, but prima facie, they, we feel that they, they don't. So for example, uh, um, why is a, uh, the white, white? I mean, you are like, but, but it's white, you know. So and so, one important object in the book is the the limits of those white questions. Because on the other hand, those are the questions that allow us to move through the world, make plans, understand others, and so they play a particularly important role in our everyday practices as well as in our cognitive uh, activities. Um, so that that's the the question of the limit. And then what is this story? You know, so I start, I mean, actually, yeah, that's a great story. And it was really striking because uh, it's just a street uh, in Paris and I happened to, to, to live there. And I was walking in the street and I, there was, you know, like a lot of people, a crowd and uh, like police cars and the firemen and the, and actually a tree just had uh, fallen uh, on a car. So there was a, so unfortunately there was a car there. Well, it's not a, too tragic story otherwise i would have not talked about it i mean because you know people were alive nobody was hurt and the, the, the car was wholly crashed and it was a sort of like tourist uh, visiting paris well i guess he would have lots of memories then and uh, and then the question was of course why so you're like why did the tree uh fall and that has of course lots of answers do you actually since this event, the like like the, the the city of Paris has started examination of you know trees in the area and 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 many of them are rotten inside. So this this was not such a you know like impredictable event. The event the the fact of the event was not so impredictable. What was unpredictable is the is the when and exactly you know. But but then and then uh, talking about the limits of the question why I thought that. There is also this question that, you know, why this guy, why this poor guy? And, uh, and there is something, I guess, in many people, which has to do with, uh, we want to understand why exactly this fell on this guy. And more generally, we want to think sometimes that are, you can explain them, but still there is, uh, something missing, uh, in our, um, in, in our, uh, intention to make sense of them. I mean, the, the tree fell on this guy and we explain why it felt somehow in terms of biology, maybe a meteorology and so on, but uh, it, uh, it it still doesn't make sense actually. So, I, I, well, at least a part of us feel that it still doesn't make sense. And, and this small feeling, I think, I try to relate it to very big things, which is um, how uh, we humans in various cultures try to complement those scientific explanations by very general ideas that try to make sense of things that are, yes, naturally explained, but that that still seem absurd to us. So that's why later on I talk about like destiny, 
which is, you know, some people would say that was his destiny. And then some people would move on and say, you know, he's punished for his deeds. And, uh, and actually, you know, a lot of really religious schemes function like this. That's not them. So, so in the book, I try to, to work this connection between why question a perfectly acceptable answer or frustration that this answer does not uh, answer a very deep uh, question or a very deep uh, expectation in us and what has been built through cultures and, and so I call that um, metaphysic uh, idols but what has been built in order to, to, to supplement this those uh, like natural and legitimate and scientific explanations yeah Talk, uh, before we get into like the metaphysical side of things, which I'm really fascinated in and that, uh, with, excuse me. And that's even, you know, I, I'm, it's not a philosophy podcast. It's a big questions podcast. I did that specifically because I, I love this interdisciplinary, like the idea that there are multiple explanations, right? Like we feel the need for that, right? Whether, <laughs> whether or not we need them, I understand it's an open question. But we feel the need for that. And so it, some of it is exploring beyond the, these disciplines. Before we get into these uh, questions, I, you know, it's even how you arranged your book. Can you talk about the grammar of why? And you, know, you talked about Aristotle's five different questions. And I loved your explanation of manna um, and, the, and the kind of flexibility, but also its intended use. Like if you, if you look for a definition of manna, it doesn't make sense. But if you look for a use for mana, it makes sense. I don't know if that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, that, that's something uh, that, that's a uh, mana is this word that, that in several South American tribes, are, like people describe to, 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 to events or things that sometimes we might translate it as sacred, we might translate it as, as magical or whatever, but but there is no real satisfactory translation. And the Claude Lévi-Strauss, the, the anthropologist and ethnologist in a very famous um, text about sociologist Marcel Moss, tries to, uh, what, what he says is that actually there is a difference between what we know and uh, what we can talk about and mana is something that has been a, 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 a meaning, a signification that has been forged in order to fill this gap. So we don't know what's going on there, but we want to talk about it. So we 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 um, label it as mana. And I, actually, I like this view. I'm not sure that all anthropologists would agree on that. And that's but still, uh, it's the same. You know, um, it's the same uh, concern that that I just told you about uh, a concern regarding the difference between the knowable, what we know, and what we feel goes beyond. And actually, we have word to go beyond that. And uh, so coming to, to grammar, actually, uh, one of the key idea of the book, which is like not very original, I mean, original, that's something many philosophers have been um, working on that and, and uh, is uh, the fact that there are several questions that we can that that are um, expressed by the word "why," and uh, they don't exactly mean the same thing. And especially, so I, there are three meanings, and and uh, we, in general, we distinguish the cause of something. So, why is uh, why is it raining? So that there, there will be um, 
uh, an answer that points out the cause. And so here the reason is the cause. But um, if if uh, I, you know I come back from the outside and uh, and you say uh, you you look at me and then someone who doesn't see me and then you tell someone who doesn't see me oh it is raining outside and the guy will tell you but how do you know it uh, or so the, sorry the guy will tell you why and a perfectly legitimate answer is to say well Philip who is entering has an umbrella. And that's not, of course, the, the reason of the rain, but it's the reason of you believing that there is rain. And so here, that's really two, two, two kinds of reasons, the reason for your belief and the reason for uh, the rain. And it's important to, to, to remember that because very often, the reason for your belief, it's not the, uh, the cause of an event, it's the effect of the event. You know, because you see the effect, you can infer that this event, like the rain, is taking place. But still, you don't know the cause of the rain. Uh, and so that's two meanings of, of why, two meanings of reason. And the third one, which is really important, is the one we use when we, we, we ask for uh, our reasons for acting. So uh, why are you like, uh, why are you taking your, your car? And because, uh, well, because I want to pick up my son at school or, or not at school. Or, yeah. So, so, but, but that's the, that's the, um, and of course that is explains you taking you, you, you driving your car. Um, that's not exactly the cause of you driving your car, because if you want to look at the cause, you, you, you have to uh, look at what's going on in your brain, the, bo the, the bodily moves that you are making, the moves of the, 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 the gear, the wheels, and so on. So uh, that, that would be something different. But our practice of justifying our actions and also trying to understand what other people are doing, it's, uh, it's um, wholly about uh, picking out the, the, picking up the, the, the reasons for um, reasons for acting. So, and the reasons for acting in general, uh, even though lots of philosophers talk about that and lots of philosophers may disagree, uh, but, but in essence, the reasons for acting are about goals. So I, so it, they are, uh, I do this because my goal, uh, is to, uh, like go and, uh, go and visit this person. And the mean for this goal is driving my car. So, but of course, that's not a cause, and that that's not at all the justification for uh, me believing that you go to uh, visit your uncle. So, so the, the, I talk about grammar because uh, I think it's, they are like in grammar. You know, you have words that have different meanings, and uh, if you confuse the meanings, then uh, you are making like mistakes that may prevent you to understand something to be understood and so on. And it's important that to distinguish those meanings because those three meanings are give rise to lots of confusions. And that's also a, like a tradition in philosophy to, um, to, 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 to identify and to uh, the, 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 the confusion, especially the confusion between uh, the reason for an action, so the goal, and the reason of an event, so the cause. And um, I, I quote very famous uh, pages by Spinoza, which is who is like maybe the most important thinkers, thinker who tried to to get rid of our idea that things have a goal or a purpose. And so he says, in general, people do do think that the world is here for a purpose, that animals and uh, are there for purposes. But but no, I mean they are there 
because they were caused by something and uh, so and then he goes with her, his like very complex metaphysics where there is like one and only one nature and everything is caused by the fact that this nature exists but anyway even the even, even when you are not a spinozist there is still this important description of the confusion between goals that are a specific answer to the question why and uh, causes that that are another answer to another kind of question why and uh, so so that that's the thing about the grammar and also it's interesting and this concept that i i borrow from uh, wittgenstein actually who was really uh into uh, trying to sketch out grammars of lots of concepts uh and uh, and when he says grammar you know like there, there is something uh something so Grammar is not exactly logic. Logic is constraining us, you know, because what's contradictory, we cannot think it and so on. A grammar, it's not exactly like logic, but still is constraining thought. So there is kind of specific necessi conceptual necessity in grammar, says Wittgenstein. And, uh, and for me, I, I use this concept because I think that um, actually uh, in grammar, you can make mistakes like using a word where actually it's not, it, it cannot make sense. And in the same way, you may use, um, a, a, a re, you may try to find a reason, answer why question, where actually there is no reason. So there is no reason, there is no answer. So that's a kind of, you know, grammar mistake. Yeah, and, and I actually, I, I'm glad you mentioned Wittgenstein because I wanted to ask you about him. Uh, it, it makes so much sense. Like even the mana discussion with uh, Levi-Strauss, uh, this idea that we focus on the use of a word rather than its essence, right? Often illuminates a lot of things, right? It's like that, that and, and you get into that in the third part of the book when you talk about limits, right? Um, yeah. So, uh I was really interested in what you had to say about the uh, like the the topology, and you know, it, as you're borrowing from Kant, can you explain that kind of the topology um, of why? Yeah, actually, the 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 um, I see the the general idea of you know the why questions and then of reasons as first there is this distinction between three domains, and then there are sometimes you cannot go from one to the other. So for example, causes are in general, in nature, not uh, goals or intentions. I mean, stones, they don't want to go somewhere. Mountains, they don't want to grow. Uh, and, uh, and hurricanes, they don't want to hurt people. I mean, they, they just happen. Uh, and, uh, but then in some other times, you, 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 you can uh, show that in some other cases, the the two meanings just can go together and be an overlap. So, and and one of the very important cases here that I uh, that I address, and well, maybe also because you know I work, I published about about sorry, uh, and uh, like teenager. Uh, yeah, yeah, happens. All good. Happens. Uh, so. Um, I, uh, it's the, the in biology the notion of functions. So uh, many biologists and philosophers of biology have noticed that it's very hard to describe, you know, like the, the uh, an animal uh, uh, without referring to 
what its parts are supposed to do, what they ought to do, what they so what is their function? Uh, so, for example, you'd say, "Oh, okay, my my, my ear, uh, my ear have the function of you know um, hearing, and they the webbed feet of the of the duck have the functions of allowing it to just um, swim." And uh, and th that's a very long-standing issue uh, in philosophy. Uh, so, like the scientific revolution occurred, and when the scientific revolution occurred, to put it very roughly. Uh, it was not allowed for science to refer to goals uh, in explaining things. So, you know, like Aristotle was like, uh, the, 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 the stone has a natural place and a tendency to, so to, 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 to go to its natural place, which is the bottom. Uh, with Galilea, the, the goal has nothing. It's, it's called the principle of inertia. It doesn't have any tendency. It just follow, follows the law of nature, which is the law of gravity. Uh, and uh, so what do you do with animals? Because animals seem to have somehow, you know, so, I mean, they, they seem to be striving for something and uh, their part seems to, to, to fulfill a function. And, uh, and so, well, Descartes is very well known for having this theory of uh, les animaux machines, you know, like machine, machine animals. So, which um, commentators still are discussing this, but for him, at least, uh, you know, the, you, you can think of animals as machines uh, engineered by God. So here, you know, like in this like very classical science, you can have goals and intentions, but just they are concentrated at the origin of the universe. You know, all goals were there, so, so God created the, those machines that are animals, but still they function as machines. Like in the modern times, you cannot, you know, uh, it, it, so you have a conflict, let's say, between the, the, it's forbidden to refer to goals of things that are not the humans. Humans, they have goals because they have reason and they, they deliberate and they forge intention. But you, get, you have to explain naturally everything. And on the other hand, it's very hard to uh, avoid any uh, appeal to functions, striving, you know, like uh, the, the, the wolves, I mean, the hunt. So they look for praise and they, and uh, so some philosophers are saying, yeah, okay, ultimately, that's just a way of talking. It's very useful because our, you know, cognitive apparatus is limited. But if we had like infinite cognitive powers, we could see everything's going on. And so it's a very complicated machine. Uh, but other philosophers are thinking, no, actually, it makes perfect sense to say the function of let's say the, 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 the horn of the uh, uh, rhinoceros is to different, different herself. Uh, what we say is that the horn is here because of natural selection, which endowed rhinoceroses that, that have such horns to, you know, to survive better than their competitors, to have more uh, offspring. And so, so actually, we, when you talk about functions, we talk about results of natural selection. Natural selection is a causal process. Of course, there is no intention in nature. It's, uh, it's the overall result of competition, competitive and pred pred predative uh, interactions. Uh, but, but that's something perfectly legitimate. And so here you have a sort of conflation legitimate between a causation, so we have causal processes. This animal is eaten by this animal. This animal is uh, reproducing more than this other. This 
this other animal that doesn't have like the horn, for example. And so, uh, and so in the end, it's a causes that behave as intentions or goals. And that's why we are perfectly entitled to say uh, the function of, let, let's say, the, the, the webbed feet of the duck is to, uh, uh, is to swim and, uh, and the, the, the wolf is hunting for, uh, for a sheep or for uh, uh, reindeers. Or... So, so that, that's the, the, the case where the territory, which is like causes and the territory reason are, you can bridge them actually. And then in other cases you cannot because uh, as I said, there is, no there is no justification to say that something perfectly natural like a hurricane, is expressing a reason. Even though in some cases, like my, you know, like my tree falling, it strikes us as so, um, you know, uh, so we have the feeling that it's meaningful, so we would like to ascribe intentions or things that are of the stuff of intentions, but it's not legitimate. Yeah, so would natural selection then be one of those fusions that would be, uh, or would you think of it more as, uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand the, the model here. You talk about a bridge. Is it that there's not necessarily that limit and that it just happens sometimes to certain questions? Or is, it, or, is it, or is it more of a fusion that actually happens like when those two questions are combined? No, actually, actually the two questions... Um, are, uh, I mean, yeah, the, 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 the question, I'm hesitating because that's really a difficult question that many people address, the, the connection between um, what we know that's gozen, so that's physics, you know, like you have animals, they grow, they right. eat each other, they reproduce, you know, and are, uh, and the, the, the notions, so uh, function or adaptation, adaptation that, that, that emerge on the basis of this. And, um, and that are legitimate, but are they the same thing, like the same causal process seen from another viewpoint, or are they um, the, the, let's say, what this causal process, so animals eating each other and so on, become, you know, it, it becomes an evolutionary process in the end, if you look at it from the viewpoint of a population. And, uh, and, and it's still, I guess it's still, it's, it's still a question. And, uh, and uh, actually there is uh, many philosophers right now trying to make sense of another uh, notion which is related to intention and goal, which is the notion of agency. And uh, so here some people think that it's perfectly legitimate to talk in terms of agency because natural selection, as I said, uh, is, uh, produces systems that are, for example, striving for something, that look at, appear as tri striving for something. And, and then you can even think of them as rational agents. But of course, you know that they are not like, like us, like thinking, uh, formulating things in their hand, is in their heads, deliberating and so on. But they, perfectly behave as rational agents and they have biologists writing papers on, you know, like the rationality of hummingbirds or uh, worms or uh, looking at, you know, like looking at experiments where they perform some, some, some behaviors. Um, and then other philosophers do think that uh, 
it's real agency therein. So it's real agents. To, so they, let's say the, 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 the wolf or the duck or even the, even the, the, the worm as real agents. They are. So, so it's really inter- from the viewpoint for, for, of history of philosophy. It's interesting because that was somehow what Aristotle, Aristotle was thinking. Of course, Aristotle didn't know the, like modern science. So it's very, very different. But in the context of, you know, modern Darwinian biology, some philosophers think that the kind of ontological approach that was Aristotle's, which think that natural natural systems, natural entities, they they are acting, they can be active or passive, and they they exert some power on other things. Some philosophers think that that's not completely stupid and that still can be defended. But um so 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 yeah so so those philosophers would think that it's really uh, 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 let's say the, the two territories are unified and the philosophers who think that you are entitled to talk in terms of agency and functions uh, but but still that's um, that animals are not agents like we are agents those philosophers think they are bridge the the two meaning of reasons are like bridging you know so yeah ah. Okay, so and I mean, this is just kind of the this is the the problem that philosopher philosopher this is the problem that philosophers are working on. Um, yeah, and that's really interesting. Like, even it sounds like there's a distinction here between um, functions and causes, agency and intention, and that's part of the reason. Even I, I mentioned at the beginning, Malibu, uh, Doctor Malibu, talking about Kant's transcendent, right? Because there is this, there seems to be this difference between animals and humans, um, at least at some level, in the capacity for self-reflection. And is that kind of, would, would that be what Kant would term the transcendent? I know I've actually talked to philosophers about consciousness and animals. I understand that there's some debate about that. But that idea of self-reflection, is that the difference between agency and intention? Well, actually, and um, as often in philosophy, you know, the, the, the way you define concepts has lots of consequences, but but okay. So what, my view is something like like this: uh, for us, an agent is a system that has uh, a, some perception of the world, has a behavioral repertoire, which is somehow conditional. I mean, if the world is in such a way, I mean, if, you know, if it rains, I go out with an umbrella and so on, and uh, and that. Uh, um, for uh, that 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 uh, follows um, that has purposes actually, and that formulates purposes. So that's intentions. Uh, so that's us as agents. And the question is: uh, Is it is this agency, or is this a very strong form of agency? So, for example, uh, we are we have this self-reflection so we so for example i say okay i um uh like like i go out and it's raining so i go back and i take my umbrella that's a stupid example but but that's uh the way we modify means and ends in connection with the way uh we, we we know our environment um and then if you compare this with something that doesn't seem at all an agent. What it is, it's, for example, um, a system that's either does always the same or 
has a very small set of conditional instructions. Rain, umbrella, sun, no umbrella. That's it. Uh, and in between those two poles are self-reflection and this kind of system whose two kinds of behaviors are somehow wired to two possible states of the environment. You might have many possibilities. So you might have larger behavioral repertoire, uh, repertoire behaviors that are modifying themselves through time because they monitor the environment and the, uh, the, uh, and the reaction, reaction of the environment. And then you would have a continuum of kind of agency. And it might be that humans are the only ones that are self-reflexive. But I guess that's an empirical question, actually. So maybe, you know, like, yeah. mo so and something that we witness in biology, and that's yeah. maybe a trend since like 20 years, 15 or 20 years, is that the, the, the predicates that we use to talk about humans, let's say consciousness, rationality, culture, uh, agency, are more and more applied to animals. And, uh, and I guess that that's, that's, uh, that's quite interesting. I mean, as philosophers, we, in general, in the philosophical tradition, you have a sort of, we take for granted, you know, that they're humans and have the, this consciousness, self-consciousness, um, Descartes, Cogito, and, uh, and then animals that for some philosophers are just machines and for other philosophers and biologists why they are much more complicated and they may forge intentions and have some kind of of uh, plasticity, flexibility, but still they are not like humanity. And I think right now what we all agree on is that there is there is an empirical work to be done and it's very hard to do it because, uh, and I mean, animals, they don't talk. That might be something they can't have, you know, has seen and because it, it in his own arguments about animal machines that's the, the key one of the key arguments is that they don't talk so they don't think so since they don't think they they are pure matter but uh i think we can uh we can grant descartes the, the first premise i mean they don't talk like us at this they don't talk to us they don't talk like us so so we have to i mean biologists they design very very clever um experimental apparatuses to for example, to, 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 to test whether bees feel pain or those kind of things, you know. So, uh, because of course we can't ask them if they, if it hurts and we cannot even feel what they feel. So, uh, but, but, but I think we are, we cannot say a priori that we'll never know or a priori that there is a, a sort of huge gap you know, infinite gap between uh, other animals and, and, and humans. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you saying that. I probably should have clarified. I was using Kant's discussion of the transcendent, but it seems clear that at least some measure of self-reflection shows up in animals, right? Like uh, I had Dr. Uh, Pena Guzman on, and he did a lot of work in animals dreaming, which is a really fascinating way to kind of chip away at that empirical study. And uh, like... Like, it seems very clear that octa, octopi uh, dream, which is kind of blows my mind, honestly. The idea that they're changing colors in the way that like, they would when they're hunting and they're like moving their arms, you know, while they're sleeping, which is just th that area from an like, it seems that's an empirical question. And then that is study that's going on right now. And it's fascinating. So I'm glad you, you mentioned that the, the dream one especially really gets me. Um, uh, you know, it's even, and you kind of mentioned this, and I just recently read Origin, but I know he took it from Aristotle 
on what the soul is. And of course, since Descartes, the soul has become this like substance, right? And so, um, but to find it even in uh, early Christianity, but also in Aristotle as like a, defined as the perception and motion, right? And so uh, it's really, um, is that kind of what you were referencing early or earlier, or does that fit in with what you're referencing earlier of like this recovery of Aristotle? Uh, that would be part of it. Yeah, the, the point, I mean, historically, yeah, Aristotle had this idea of the soul of like psyche, uh, as, as, as he said, which is very large and, and it, it's the extension of soul is life. I mean, it's the principle of life. So, of course, for, for him, yeah, I mean, some animals, uh, they, they, they perceive, they may imagine things, they, um, he doesn't really enter into this modern discussion about do they have concepts or not, that's not, not at all his kind of Aristotelian kind of psychology. But, well, actually, uh, with Descartes, the, the soul becomes the principle of thought, and then there is thought and matter, and he has very uh, sophisticated, sophisticated arguments to say that there are only those two kinds of being uh, possible. Uh, so either you are thought, and then you are humans, uh, or you are, I mean, if you are not, you are only matter, extension, he says. And so, and you are the object of physics, mathematical physics. And uh, so, but, but uh, yes, for, for Aristotle, anything that's alive has a soul, like us. And what's for him, like proper to humans, it's, it's what he called the noose. So what we would, we could translate as the mind. And uh, there is a f funny, um, well, uh, an interesting thing that it, he, the noose is, uh, uh, he talks about it in the treatise on generation. So where he talks about what we call the epigenetical embryogenesis of animals. And at some point he says they, uh, so the, the, the souls, you have three souls, the, the perceptive soul, the, the vegetative, perceptive, uh, locomotive soul, and they, they emerge one on the other because if you're a plant, it has only a vegetative soul. Uh, let's say a dog, it has all the three souls. And the question is, uh, you know, the, the, the noose, the mind in humans, where does it, does it come from? And Aristotle, I mean, he really doesn't know. And I feel he doesn't really care. So he says it comes from the door. So it's Turatain in Greek. Hmm. And so, so but, but, you know, like the, then the, you know, Christian theologists. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Did you say from the door? Through, through the door, yeah. Through the door. That's, that's and, a Greek word that says yes. through the door. And and then you know like um, the the let's say medieval. What does he mean by that? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I, I don't know. I mean, come on, come on. Okay, know, like, 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 like <laughs> 10, 20 centuries of command commentators, and they're trying to to get it. You know what? What does he? What does he say? And I have a very like deflationist feeling that he just doesn't know. And you know, he said, "Well, okay, I have to say something, but but we don't know." You know, like and. Uh, uh, so, of course, if you are, for example, uh, Aquinas, you would say, yeah, it's good at some point, you know, in the in the uh, development of the embryo, infuses the embryo with the the the, the capacity of the mind. I mean, the, uh, and and then this discussion later and connected with the, the you know, all the question about human, the, the development of the egg and so, but, but um but yeah, for, for at least for Aristotle, yeah, the, the humans, they have the mind and the mind is the, the capacity of reflection, uh, 
abstract reasoning and then knowledge science and the, but um uh yeah however uh the the um, uh i don't think that you, right now empirically we know you know what mind is and you know if it, if it's there is a great book uh, by philosopher peter godfresmith which is called other minds and it's a book about uh, actually uh, octopus and cephalopods and uh, and it's called other minds because from an evolutionary viewpoint they are really really very different octopus so yeah. i mean nobody would object you know to to uh, gorillas having a mind and uh, being thinking and they are very close but octopus but still their behavior is like it makes sense that they have something like a mind but they are very i mean they they they, they we diverge from the the branch the phylum that that produced the octopus i think something like six six hundred million years ago and so so he says somewhere you know like if you want to think of what is an alien an alien mind well this is the closest thing i can show you that's an octopus uh so the question is is it a mind is it not a mind so then what what do you uh, what do you refer to when you say a mind so is it only you know cognitive does it has some but i guess there is the, the, the it includes the capacity for some purposes yeah and uh but uh but then it opens a lot of questions because the capacity for purposes for someone like Kant, it goes with freedom and freedom is exactly what sets us apart from the rest of the world and uh, uh, and does us with what he calls the dignity. And then you have all those moral uh, consequences he draws and uh, that, that, that has a really uh, important impact. But yeah. Yeah. It, um... Even as you're talking about this, there's a, a certain geekiness that I feel to myself um, when uh, you talk about these empirical questions. And there are things that I think uh, the person outside of these circles, you know, they're like, oh, octopus, you know, if an octopus dreams, that's really interesting, right? But they don't think about the, the repercussions. Even as we're talking about like the vegetative and the locomotive and all these kinds of things, I just the other day saw uh, an article about these. They've done more and more research on what they call these walking trees. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they can, yeah. they, they will travel up to 20 meters in a year searching for sunlight. Like they will move their roots through the soil. And uh, just this idea of like, we create these categories, right? Like, well, plants are different because they don't move. And then all of a sudden it's like, I mean, except for these, you know, <laughs> it's like, well, animals don't have language. It's like, well, I mean, except for these ones and they have like, it's pretty complicated actually. And so that, that kind of, um, uh, rec like things that we feel are a priori often because of like inflated sense of importance for humans, you know, like we want to create this distinction and then it's like not a, a priori, right? Like that, like there's some empirical research to be done here. Um, I want to be, uh, respectful of your time as we, uh, I, I loved how at the end you were talking about, um, I just wanted to ask you about this quote, uh, how you end the book is ultimately rather than receiving definitive answers, the questions when asked why and why, why would trigger a rational discussion about what should constitute a proper answer. Metaphysical frameworks are not conventions, which because they're arbitrary are in principle equal to each other. They require reasons and we have still not found the decisive ones. And this is why metaphysics will continue to be in Kant's words 
an arena. And so in some ways, you know, it seems like your book is a defense of metaphysics. Um, but can you explain a little bit about that distinction between like, what is it the importance of metaphysics and why are metaphysical frameworks not conventions? Yeah, so that, that, that's, a, um, yeah, that's an important question. Actually, the, you know, like writing this book, I felt uh, uh, very, very, um, like I felt constantly um, challenged by conventionalism. So the idea that, you know, we, I, I, I talked about the limits of why, you know, and the idea that, well, it's a pure convention. So if we want to, to say, uh, for example, uh, the kid who says, uh, uh, why is the why white white? Okay, we can say there is an answer, and the answer is uh, the whiteness. So, and we could so so, uh, and many of the questions that doesn't seem to make sense, you could say okay, but there are questions about the meaning of the world. So actually, the answer is one day people decided to um, ascribe this meaning to this word, and so conventionalism is a very powerful uh, take on many uh, foundational issues. Uh, and um, thinking of Wittgenstein, for example, he was a sort of conventional conventionalist regarding mathematics. So, and in mathematics axioms, we can you can easily see them and conventions because they they are not really evidences, they are not facts, they are not. So, what a, what's the thing about metaphysics? So, uh, I think that what we call metaphysics is about the way uh, we can legitimately use concepts that make sense of the world and of our experience to say it in a very most abstract manner. So, for example, uh, one metaphysical question is, uh, what's out there? Is it events, you know, like, or is it processes? And, uh, and actually, uh, or is it substances that display properties? And Aristotle is maybe the major metaphysician, metaphysician of substances. And, uh, you know, at this grand scale, he wins. I mean, all, many people are Aristotelian. So, so they would say, what, what's here? I mean, the, 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 there is a piano uh, behind me and it's brown. So substance with a property. Uh, some philosophers, very famously Nietzsche, try to uh, show that actually that's an illusion and but what's out there there are processes so what we think of substances it's just like very 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 slow processes yeah and uh, you know everything changes but we just don't notice the change because if we were to notice the change you know if so it would be i mean life would be very hard for example if i you know, I, I, I get out in the morning and I get back, you know, to my house uh, and uh, at night. And it, I'm so uh, receptive to changes that I just don't, rec I see like the small changes that change place and I'm not sure it's my apartment. So if I was, if I were so receptive to changes, I mean, life would be impossible, says Nietzsche. So he thinks we have this, there is this ap appearance of you know, substance stability, but Deep down, it's processes. That's a metaphysical stance, you know, processes. Substances and properties, it's another metaphysical stance. And now the point is, um, 
physics, you know, you, you have hypotheses and you test the hypothesis. And uh, even though as a philosopher of science, I, uh, you know, I would say, well, it's a bit more complicated and otherwise I would be unemployed. Uh, but still, it, it, I mean, the very, very, very rough description of physics is that you, you make experiments. What would be an experiment that tells you, ah, it's not, it's not substances. I, I think there is no, uh, no decisive experiment. Of course, metaphysics shouldn't, you know, be absolutely illusory uh, or, you know, like have no relation whatsoever to our experience. But it's a, so taking a very famous claim uh, of David Lewis, I mean, I use David Lewis is the guy who was thinking about possible worlds uh, in the continuation of Leibniz. And I'm using this idea a lot in the book and in general. And David Lewis says, you know, like there are possible worlds and they exist. So a world where I have a red t-shirt and you have a brown hat, I mean, they exist. Uh, okay. But we cannot, and he says, we, we don't have access to them. Right. So it, you can, there is no experience that could prove him wrong or right. So what does he do? And that's here. It, it's important. He said, actually, if, we, if I want to make sense of several things, like and mostly the way we speak and we, we name we, we refer to propositions we, when we speak. Uh, we think of causation. We think of properties of things. Uh, all those basic um, conceptual activities, so uh, talking and then, you know, uh, and then uh, formulating proposition, cause, making causal inference, uh, look, uh, finding or identifying the properties of things, all those things, actually they, 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 they um, presuppose possible worlds. And so, so this is his reasoning. So, so th that's, I love that because he starts with perfectly like daily things. I mean, I do causal inferences. Uh, I say, well, this, it's a, you know, like, like uh, my, my, <laughs> the, the door, the, the door is, is open. Uh, uh, I guess uh, my son forgot to, to close it and, you know, causal inference. Um, but this needs possible worlds. Why? So I say, for example, uh, uh, my, my, uh, like, like uh, this dog has, um, uh, four legs and it's a property of dogs. I and mean, it's a very stupid example once again, but, but when I say this, I say, okay, if I think of possible dogs like mine, it, they, they can have very different colors. They can have very, you know, like they, they can have long hair, short hair. Uh, but they, they cannot have like no legs. So this is a possible world where, you know, you don't have those dogs. So, uh, I mean, the, the, the reasoning is a bit more complicated, but the idea is that implicitly you refer to possible worlds when you make a difference between the essential properties of a dog. So for example, the legs and accidental properties. It has like a, 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 a black, black hair. And, um, so the, the point is in metaphysics, you don't have experiments. You have, you argue for, you justify what you say and that distinct metaphysics are trying to make sense of our conceptual schemes, apparatuses and so on. And the relation with my book is very simple is that if I want to identify the, 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 the limits of the question why and one of the limit is uh, uh, what's self-evident, 
and when and the other limit if what is what is contingent. But if I want to identify those limits, I need to somehow subscribe to a metaphysical framework. For example, the metaphysical framework that will account for the fact that things can be self-evident. And uh, and that's why there is a kind of skepticism because uh, I, I you know I take the word from Kant the arena the Kampfplatz they so he says metaphysics has always been an arena and and I think he's right but but because you don't have this decisive experiment on the one hand and the other hand you have to make metaphysical claim in order to um, account for very basic conceptual cognitive or practical uh, structure of our lives. Uh, Dr. Hooneman, uh, that is a great summary. I, I love ending on that. Um, thank you so much for coming today. That was, uh, yeah, I, I love this idea uh, of recognizing um, the the work between metaphysics and empiricism and like or empirical claims. And that's just, uh, I'm gonna think on that all week. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for questions and the discussion that that was great.